BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys episode 424, Kashushko, the man, the bridge, the legend. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, kicking off a brand new year of shows. And since we are entering our 17th year of podcasting, if you can believe that, and with Tom still away on holiday break, I'm going to get a little experimental and do something that I've never done on the show. And that is read some romantic verse by Lord Byron. Poland or which the avenging angel passed, but left thee as he found thee, still a waste, forgetting all thy still enduring claim, thy lauded people and extinguished name, thy sigh for freedom, thy long flowing tear, that sound that crashes in the tyrant's ear, Kosciuszko. The English poet is, of course, referring to the Polish national hero Tadeusz Kosciuszko. However, if Lord Byron had been from Queens, he would have been referring to the Kosciuszko Bridge and might have prefaced the bridge's name with a curse word. The original Kosciuszko Bridge opened in 1939, and its glamorous and long, long overdue replacement opened in two phases, in 2017 and 2019. The bridge is the hyphen in the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, as it literally connects Brooklyn to Queens over Newtown Creek, that 3.5-mile creek that empties into the East River. In Queens, the approaches to the bridge slice through Calvary Cemetery. On the Brooklyn side, the bridge intervenes between the neighborhoods of Greenpoint and Williamsburg, or East Williamsburg, and some of you might even just call it Bushwick. Let's not get too particular quite yet, for at one point, a long time ago, all of these neighborhoods were actually a part of Bushwick. The Kosciuszko Bridge has traditionally been known in sort of two respects. 
Until it was replaced just a few years ago, it was famously one of New York's most hated pieces of infrastructure. Entirely insufficient in its duties, a bottleneck of traffic for much of the 20th century, and a scourge for anyone trying to get to and from LaGuardia and JFK airports. It's also infamous, at least among non-Polish people, for its challenging spelling and pronunciation. In fact, I'm saying Kasiuszko today, but many of you may actually say Kaziusko or even Kaziosko, and there are even other variations. Adding to the confusion is the fact that this revered Polish hero has hundreds of things named after him throughout the United States and around the world. There's even another Kosciuszko Bridge in New York State, up in Albany. And so, through various dialects and local traditions, his name is spoken quite differently throughout the entire world. Tadeusz Kosciuszko has no real direct connection to either Brooklyn or Queens, and I'm not even sure he even spent that much time in Long Island, ever. So why did New York name a bridge, a bridge that would become a very contentious bridge, why did they name it after him? Well, today I hope to put some respect on that name, whether you're driving on the BQE or strolling Kosciuszko Park in Milwaukee or General Taddeus Kosciuszko Way in downtown Los Angeles, visiting Kosciuszko Island in Alaska or climbing Mount Kosciuszko in Australia, that continent's highest mountain. And if I got the local pronunciation of any of those things incorrect, please forgive me. Andrzej Tadeusz Benefentura Kosciuszko was, to the manor born, on February 4th, 1746, on an estate that is today in Belarus, but was then a part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Kosciuszko was born into a world of feudalism, the son of minor nobility with a family estate worked over by dozens of peasant families. Kosciuszko grew up fiercely patriotic to the Polish homeland and unusually sympathetic to the plight of the lower classes. As his own family estate finances deteriorated over the decades, perhaps he saw more of himself in the peasant class than others in the nobility. To quote Alex Storowinski in his book, The Peasant Prince, quote, His growing opposition to feudalism made Kosciuszko even more attuned to tolerance. As he began his journey, he hoped to find like-minded people." After attending military school in Warsaw, Kosciuszko continued his studies in Paris, studying engineering at the Royal Academy while taking in radical philosophy at the cafes of the left bank. However, by the time he returned home in 1774, his family fortune had been depleted and he could no longer afford to buy his way into the military. After a failed attempt to elope with the ravishing Ludwika Sosnowska sullied his reputation, Kosciuszko eventually returned to Paris, which was all abuzz with rumors of growing war abroad between England and its rebel North American colonies. French allies of the rebel colonists began securing educated men for the American war effort. The Virginian Arthur Lee wrote to his French contacts, quote, We need arms, powder, and above all, 
engineers. Tadeusz Kosciuszko, inspired by the American cause and hungry for adventure, answered that call. And in June of 1776, Kosciuszko boarded a ship to America. Kosciuszko did not know a single person in the colonies, but in Philadelphia, he managed to call upon the most famous man in America, Benjamin Franklin, who was impressed enough with his qualifications that he was presented to the Continental Congress, then hired by Franklin to help design forts to defend the Delaware River. This was at the precise moment that the British invaded and promptly took over New York, driving out George Washington and his Continental Army. And thus began Kosciuszko's meteoric rise through the ranks, because almost nobody associated with the Patriots had comparable talents like his. All theoretical, of course, we would actually call what happens next on-the-job training. By the spring of 1777, Kosciuszko was stationed at the French-built Fort Ticonderoga and immediately cautioned his superiors that an undefended elevation nearby, a hill today called Mount Defiance, could be taken at any time by the Redcoats, then, from that point, used to capture the fort. The Brigadier General, however, ignored his advice, perhaps having little respect for this foreigner. And wouldn't you know, in July of 1777, the British did exactly that, capturing the fort, and the Americans fled Ticonderoga in disgrace, but not before Kosciuszko facilitated their retreat by blowing up a few bridges. An interesting resume point for a man better known today for his bridges. Even among the many ragtag Europeans who joined the colonist rebel call, Kosciuszko was unique and even exotic. He spoke very little English at first and preferred, actually, to communicate in French, so much so that he was often confused for being French. Few knew how to successfully pronounce his name, even then, and George Washington through his long association with Kosciuszko, spelled his name at least 11 different ways. Many people just ended up calling him Cause. Fortunately, he was famously of good spirit and quite humorous. According to author Andrew Carroll, quote, when one American general complained that his name was difficult to pronounce, Kosciuszko retorted good-naturedly that Knickerbocker and Schenectady didn't exactly roll off the tongue for him either, unquote. Oh, and he was especially popular with the ladies. His artistic French education came in handy when asked by several young women if he could draw them. One early object of his affection was Philip Schuyler's daughter, Betsy, or Eliza. She would, of course, later go on to marry Alexander Hamilton. In the summer of 1777, Kosciuszko received word that a famous countryman of his had joined the American cause, Casimir Pulaski, who had once attempted to liberate Poland many years before and was now at Washington's side as a general, soon to command a cavalry legion. Kosciuszko was a nobody compared to this Polish war hero. 
However, his exceptional skills as an engineer would help win the Battle of Saratoga that fall, and his victory there would recommend him for a very critical task. The construction of a fortification along the Hudson River to block British warships from traveling north up the river to Albany and dominating the waterway. That point on the western side of the Hudson Highlands, selected by Kosciuszko, would be known at first as Fort Arnold. The system of defenses that he designed were quickly built, and although some of his plans were refitted in later generations, Kosciuszko is credited with laying the groundwork for the home of the United States Military Academy, the bedrock institution of the U.S. Army. During work in the fall of 1779, he received word that Casimir Pulaski had died on the battlefield in Georgia. Even still, Kosciuszko desired a more active role in the war, and in the fall of 1780, he left behind the fort's blueprints at a boarding house and headed south, little knowing the deceits of the officer for whom the fort was named, Benedict Arnold, the general who was now in command and who planned to essentially hand the fort over to the British. Fortunately, the British spy Jean André was captured with paperwork detailing the fort's defenses, and in another historically underappreciated historic move, a woman known as Ms. Warren, proprietor of the boarding house, burned Kosciuszko's blueprints before they could fall into the wrong hands. Benedict Arnold was outed as a traitor. As for his Fort Arnold, it was later renamed West Point. Kosciuszko spent the rest of the war in the South and became, by most accounts, the quiet salvation of the Continental Army, the trusted engineer of Major General Nathaniel Greene. His most inspired creations were not forts and bridges, but flat-bottomed boats or bateaux used to quickly transport soldiers over twisty southern rivers, which the British were duly unprepared for. In an echo of the great Pulaski, he even commandeered a couple cavalry squadrons. And I must add one detail that will make him quite endearing, I think, to modern listeners. For in January of 1781, he wrote the army's physician general of his only true desire in life. Quote, I cannot live without coffee, and I beg you to send six pounds of coffee with sugar in proportion. Unquote. Finally, in the fall of 1781, as Tom and I spelled out in our recent show on Evacuation Day, Lord Cornwallis's army fell at the Battle of Yorktown. Kosciuszko was on the battlefield to the very end and beyond. Some accounts suggest he was the final man to be shot at by Redcoats in 1782, and he had the tattered coat to prove it. The British would finally vacate their old colonies in November of 1783. Kosciuszko would be there to personally witness it, riding beside George Washington on his entry into the city and dining with the future president in the long room at France's tavern, where Washington officially bade his officers, including Kosciuszko, farewell. But the end of the American Revolution would be only the beginning of Kosciuszko's adventures. 
He supported values of liberty and freedom to a degree that many of his compatriots in the newly formed United States only pretended. In America, Kosciusko's aide-de-camp was a free black man named Agrippa Hull. And while Tadeusz was a close associate to Thomas Jefferson, they were at deep odds about the future president's ownership of enslaved people. But the American Revolution only sharpened Kosciusko's views about his own country's inequality between nobles and serfs, but also with Poland's population of Jewish residents. Among European countries, Poland was known to be the most religiously tolerant, and millions of Jewish people persecuted and terrorized in other countries had fled here by the 18th century. But they were hardly equal to Christian Polish residents. And by Kosciuszko's time, Jewish people weren't even officially allowed to live in cities like Warsaw, although unofficially many still did. In all, Poland's troubled inequalities looked ripe for a revolutionary movement. And here was Kosciuszko, fresh from a successful revolution. In 1789, he became a major general of a new Polish army and a figurehead for liberty, right as reformers began building their own constitution, which was adopted on May 3rd, 1791. It didn't go far enough in Kosciuszko's thinking, but it was a step in the right direction. And he threw the national forces to its defense in 1792, when the Russians, who liked neither a powerful Poland nor an empowered peasantry, invaded the country on the orders of their Empress Catherine the Great. For two months, Kosciuszko became the country's Washingtonian figure, successfully holding back Russian forces. However, he and his countrymen were betrayed by his king, Pontiatowski, who essentially folded to Russian influence. In anger, he resigned from the army, but not from the cause of Polish liberty. This called for an uprising. On March 24, 1794, Tadeusz Kosciuszko and his army of thousands of rebels peacefully took over the city of Krakow and declared himself commander-in-chief of the military, now prepared to defend their fallen constitution. And thus began the Kosciuszko Uprising, a spirited but ultimately doomed attempt at liberation, inspired in part by America's successful revolution, but one that would have gone much further. In May, Kosciuszko issued a proclamation which weakened and nearly abolished serfdom in the country, one of the boldest documents of freedom in the world at that time. Poland's unfriendly neighbors, Russia, Austria, and Prussia, where society was still governed by the feudalist system, could not allow such freedom to stand, lest their own peasantry escape there, or worse yet, actually demand such freedoms themselves. However, there were no French forces to bail out Kosciuszko as the Continental Army had benefited from in their war. By the fall, the flames of Polish freedom were extinguished. Kosciuszko was captured and his army defeated. And Poland was then partitioned by Russia, Austria, and Prussia. It ceased to exist as a sovereign country. 
for 123 years. Kosciuszko was held prisoner in St. Petersburg until 1796, when he was finally freed, and for a time moved back to the United States, moved to Philadelphia, stayed there for a couple years, actually, in part to collect belated back pay from the new American government. Like He hadn't really been paid yet. Before he returned to Europe in 1798, Kosciuszko wrote his will and gave it to Thomas Jefferson, who would very, very soon become the president of the United States. In his will, he authorized his estate to be used in its entirety to free Jefferson's enslaved people and many others, as many could be freed with the amount of money that he had. However, the will was never executed due to other apparent wills that were floating out there, and of course, Jefferson's own delays, even knowing Kosciuszko's own passionate intentions. In 1817, Kosciuszko even attempted to emancipate the peasants on his own remaining lands in Europe, but this too was halted, this time from Russian Tsar Alexander I. On October 15th, 1817, Tadeusz Kosciuszko died during a trip to Lake Geneva. He was celebrated as the embodiment of modern democracy, both in Europe and abroad. According to the Baltimore Patriot on October 31st, 1817, quote, his name belongs to the civilized world and his virtues to humanity. America includes him among her most illustrious defenders. Little did they know in 1817 how the Kosciuszko name would be honored upon a bridge over a horribly putrid body of water. We'll get to Kosciuszko, the bridge, after this. Tune in to the New York Historical Society's Must Listen To podcast, For The Ages, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States, hosted by David M. Rubenstein. The United States Constitution did not create or provide for the presidential cabinet. In the episode, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, David is joined by presidential historian Lindsay Chervinsky to dissect the reasons behind Washington's first convening his department secretaries two and a half years into his presidency and the far-reaching consequences that resulted from the development of the party system to the balance of powers. Then, in the episode, Justice Deferred, Race and the Supreme Court, prize-winning author and professor of history Orville Vernon Burton charts the Supreme Court's racial jurisprudence, discussing the many cases involving America's racial minorities and the impact of individual rulings. Then, join David and author Andrew Meyer as they dive into the history and the legacy of the Morgenthau family, discussing Andrew's new book, Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Let me take you back to that date, October 15th, 1817, and what the scene might have been like 7,000 miles west of the former sovereign country of Poland to the brackish waters of Newtown Creek on Long Island, which by that time was already separated on the western shore with Kings County to the south from Queens County to the north. Those names clearly trace back to the British years of occupation, those pesky British whom Kosciuszko had fought so valiantly to expel. Now the bridge which bears his name links those reminders to New York's colonial history. Newtown Creek also gets its name from the British, for there once was a British settlement named Newtown located on its northern shore. And that's not all. The creek only goes in about a mile or so before breaking into uh, a few small tributaries, Dutch kills, and then much further in, English kills. If you've gone clubbing in East Williamsburg recently, you have inevitably traipsed by the English kills. You probably haven't seen it, but maybe you smelled it. Back in 1817, of course, this wasn't East Williamsburg, but the town of Bushwick, another vestige of the years of Dutch occupation. In the early 19th century, Newtown Creek was actually a pleasant place, so teeming with life that it once contained an island named Mussel Island for its thriving harvest of mollusks. By this time, there was already a small bridge located near the spot of today's Kosciuszko Bridge, a small privately run bridge which was constructed in 1803, known as the Penny Bridge named for the price of its toll. In an age of inadequate roads, the creek would have been a vital waterway for local farmers who ferried their produce over to the markets of New York. Life near the Penny Bridge was simple and serene. I found a notice in the 1843 Brooklyn Daily Eagle advertising, quote, a house and a shed with garden near the Penny Bridge. It would be a first-rate stand for a shoemaker, as there are none within a mile of it. 
it was a peaceful enough place in the 1840s that the congregation of Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York decided to consecrate a cemetery just north of the Penny Bridge that would be called Calvary Cemetery. It opened in 1848, and for many decades afterwards, funeral processions would be regularly seen crossing the bridge from the King's County side. When the Flushing Railroad was constructed the following decade, a station was built at Penny Bridge just to accommodate those people who wanted to visit the cemetery. Beyond the boundaries of Calvary, however, the land around the creek began looking and smelling a lot more industrial. Newtown Creek was connected to the vast East River waterfront, which was quickly being filled up with factories, warehouses, and shipbuilding concerns. We've spoken about the ascent of industry here during the 19th century in several past shows, including more recently my show last year on the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Already by the year 1810, New York had become America's leading seaport, and industrialists bought up almost all of the available shorefront. For the Newtown Creek, this meant factories that used the waters not just for transportation, but more importantly for disposal of some of the most toxic and putrid materials ever produced. Oils, chemicals, fuels, even animal parts. Over the decades, the creek was deepened to accommodate bigger shipping vessels, killing off the mussels and all the other natural life. And the surrounding bucolic farmland was slowly parceled away until by the mid-19th century, the creek was essentially an industrial channel. This brought enormous wealth and growth to the communities on either side of the creek. To the north sat several villages and hamlets, the most prominent being Astoria. In 1870, at the mouth of the creek, Long Island City was incorporated, although the city part was mostly aspirational at this particular time, but its influence was dwarfed by the rising communities on the King's County side. The old village of Brooklyn was now rapidly expanding around the main Fulton Ferry Landing and the community of Brooklyn Heights further south. Meanwhile, the old town of Bushwick was torn asunder when the village of Williamsburg, with its viable East River real estate, became a separate town and eventually a city that would rival the growth of Brooklyn, okay? This exciting duel of metropolises didn't last very long, however. Williamsburg lost. <laughs> Williamsburg and Bushwick were soon absorbed into the city of Brooklyn and then were collectively all known as the Eastern District. All right, got that? You don't need to memorize all that, just it's the Eastern District now. And there's actually one more interesting development here along that southern shore of Newtown Creek next to Williamsburg, an independent development named for an especially lush extension into the river called appropriately Greenpoint. This developed alongside Williamsburg and Bushwick and then was, of course, absorbed into the city of Brooklyn in 1855. It was part of the Eastern District. So that by the start of the Gilded Age then, 
we've got all the place names assembled that would live on as neighborhoods surrounding Newtown Creek today. Okay, so all of those are still active neighborhood names. According to the Newtown Creek Alliance, in the late 19th century, quote, the banks of the creek saw the opening of more than 50 different refineries of all kinds, producing consumer products, including oil, sugar, copper, sulfuric acid, chemicals, and dyes. Animal rendering and glue factories also found their smelly homes here. Companies like the Locust Hill Oil Works, the Pratt Oil Works, Astral Oil, and many, many more were all in the business of refining crude oil into fuels, unquote. By the 1880s, the skies over Newtown Creek were black and sooty, blotting out the sun, its sharp, fetid aromas causing people on passing ships to even retch and faint. People, of course, lived alongside these troubling conditions, the workers of these polluting factories, the immigrant laborers who made the surrounding neighborhoods their home. First, Irish and German immigrants, then later Eastern European and Italian. But I'd like to focus on one immigrant enclave in particular, and the one that leads us to our hero, Tadeusz Kosciuszko. As I mentioned earlier, Poland had been partitioned up by these larger powers like Russia and Austria in the 19th century following the Kosciuszko Uprising. After the French and Prussian War in the 1870s, thousands of Polish residents then immigrated to the United States. More than are perhaps known, actually, to historians as most of them would have been listed as Russian, Prussian, or something else at the immigrant processing stations. Polish immigrants began settling in Greenpoint, which was very poignant because their Polish nationality and culture could emerge here in a way that couldn't be done in their more oppressive home countries. By the 1890s, Greenpoint was the largest Polish enclave in Brooklyn. After 1898, when Brooklyn was consolidated with New York and the three other boroughs to create Greater New York, the Polish population actually grew larger, especially after the completion of the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903, which facilitated an exodus of Polish residents from the packed quarters of New York's Lower East Side. So you had a new influx of people coming from Manhattan over to Brooklyn. And by the 1920s and 30s, Polish New Yorkers were a significant political and cultural force here in the borough. In contrast to the increasingly toxic industries along the waterfront, less than a mile away, a vibrant cultural scene was developing here in Greenpoint, in particular along Manhattan Avenue. Meanwhile, the scene over Newtown Creek was getting quite ghastly. The old Penny Bridge had been replaced many, many times. In 1894, a temporary wooden bridge at this spot collapsed, killing nine people. A replacement swing drawbridge called the Meeker Avenue Bridge could not obviously handle the advanced traffic that was brought on with the invention of the automobile. A new highway system needed to be developed in the city to accommodate the vast increase of automobile traffic that was about to occur 
and a new bridge needed to be created to take this new generation of commuters over Newtown Creek. We'll get to the bridge and Robert Moses after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Now, sir, uh, how does the nation stand as regards road building? Are we falling behind on roads or are we keeping up? Oh, we're way behind. Been falling behind steadily for years, and uh, now the situation is more or less desperate. Unless we launch a, a new program, a much larger program, we're going to face a situation where we can't accommodate the output of cars. Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, who was so much more than a Parks Commissioner, would not be involved in every single aspect of the massive highway construction project to be known as the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, and perhaps better known to all of us as the BQE, but in its totality, it served his larger purposes. And to be fair, those of many city planners, as well as Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. The idea was to make New York more interconnected and car-friendly. Moses' grand project was the Triborough Bridge, which opened in 1936, connecting the boroughs of Manhattan, Bronx, and Queens. He would soon also develop another expressway project over the Gowanus Canal, the Gowanus being Brooklyn's other industry-fueled, massively polluted body of water. Why was there such a burst of enthusiasm to build highways in the 1930s? Well, funding from the New Deal certainly kept fueling these projects, keeping them alive. Practically speaking, building something like the Triborough Bridge created more traffic and almost demanding that everything that connected to it be equally upgraded. But it was two colossal projects that made this highway upgrade something of an urgency. The first was the opening of the New York Municipal Airport on October 15, 1939, later to be renamed LaGuardia Airport. The second project was the creation of a mega tourist attraction, 
The World's Fair of 1939 out at Flushing Meadows Park, right next to the airport. Nobody would be able to get to the fair conveniently using the current road structure from the 1920s. This meant eventually everything needed an upgrade, including the Meeker Avenue Bridge over Newtown Creek. The bridge was especially bad because, you know, it had been designed more to accommodate the flow of boat traffic than it was car traffic. To quote from the New York Daily News in 1936, quote, the new bridge would be built 800 feet upstream from the present span and on a high level to eliminate a railroad grade crossing. The bridge is proposed as a main thoroughfare to the World's Fair, unquote. In article after article I read while researching this, planners were so focused on getting the bridge done in time for the World's Fair. Well, they were a little late, actually. The new Meeker Avenue Bridge opened on August 23rd, 1939, about four months after the fair's opening. You know, it was, it was certainly impressive for its time. A 6,000 feet truss bridge with two three-lane concrete roadways, each 32 feet. And yet the bridge's opening was something of a somber occasion. Mayor LaGuardia at its opening declared, quote, in the spirit of neighborliness and desire for peace, I now formally declare the Meeker Avenue Bridge open to public use. But its opening was buried on page 25 of the New York Times because the front page was dominated with news of war in Europe. One headline declared, quote, Poles doubt war. Warsaw is calm. Contend Hitler will not risk general conflict. One week after the opening of the Meeker Avenue Bridge, Germany invaded Poland. And in no area of New York was this news felt so sharply than in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. From the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, Bombing by the Germans on the homeland today found the Poles in Brooklyn ready for the emergency. Men were eager to get into the fight. Women prayed in the churches for peace, but offered their sons to fight if necessary. And the young Polish-American girls were prepared to do their part run ambulances, serve as nurses, do whatever the home country needed to preserve its independence. In particular, thousands of Jewish Brooklynites of Polish origin scrambled to get news of loved ones back home. And so, few in these communities cleaved by the new bridge were in any mood to celebrate it. In February of 1940, with war now raging in Europe and America still formally neutral, newspapers ran a proposal by Brooklyn Councilman Anthony D. Giovanna to rename the Meeker Avenue Bridge after the Polish war hero Tadeusz Kosciuszko. The memory of General Kosciuszko deserves this great honor. The general had a passionate devotion to the ideas expressed in the American Declaration of Independence, equality for all, regardless of race, color, or creed. 
By the summer, the councilman's recommendation was passed by the city council and then signed by Mayor LaGuardia. On September 22, 1940, the bridge was officially renamed the Kosciuszko Bridge in a ceremony with 15,000 Polish Americans in attendance. LaGuardia said at the ceremony, We are met here today to do something more than simply name a bridge. We are met here today to pay tribute to a great personage of history and the ideals that he represented. And insofar as the American people and the American government are concerned, the free government of Poland still lives and will continue to live. Kosciuszko was a revered hero within the Polish community. In fact, the city's Polish American Charitable Foundation, which has been around since 1923, is known as the Kosciuszko Foundation. But he was not actually as well known to the world at large. And now this bridge, pretty seminal, even central to the city's ambitious highway plan, was named for him. Just as today, New Yorkers don't really like it when you change the name of their bridges. You know, see the Ed Koch, a.k.a. Queensboro Bridge, for just one particular example. And it took some time for people to get used to this new name. Many just kept calling it the Meeker Avenue Bridge, despite the fact that the bridge now veered away from Meeker Avenue. The war overall delayed the construction of the BQE, but by the end of the decade, Brooklyn and Queens had become a sprawling construction site, with thousands of homes and businesses destroyed to facilitate its winding path, hurling to the center of Queens and downtown Brooklyn. It became pretty clear early on that the Kosciuszko Bridge had some problems. However, it was much preferable than another bridge over Newtown Creek further west called the Vernon Avenue Bridge, which first opened in 1905, linking Greenpoint directly to Long Island City in Queens. This bridge was terrible, and by the late 1940s, there were plans to replace this as well, and in a fabulous parallel, another councilman named Jeremiah Bloom solicited the advice of Greenpoint's Polish community and suggested that this new bridge be renamed for Casimir Pulaski, the Polish war hero who had died in battle in 1777. And so, in 1954, the Pulaski Bridge opened to traffic, making the two largest bridges over Newtown Creek named for Polish revolutionaries. By this time, however, the Kosciuszko was already becoming a truly unpleasant experience. Things were not helped with the opening of Idlewild Airport in 1948, that's today's JFK International, and by 1958, when the BQE officially became part of the federal highway system, Interstate 278, the bridge had to be extensively repaved. From the local newspaper Greenpoint Weekly Star, quote, The roadway of the Kosciuszko Bridge is a shame. Craters that consistently appear overnight and temporary repair jobs that feel like corrugated washboards when you ride over them has taken a heavy toll on Mr. Average's auto and nerve, unquote. 
nobody could quite anticipate the amount of traffic this bridge would have to endure. That, by the way, is a statement that would apply pretty much to any segment of the BQE. In particular today, that segment, which is a triple-deck cantilever running below Brooklyn Heights Promenade. We have a show on the Promenade from a few years ago, if you want to like dig into that story. The Kosciuszko, however, faced another problem from below, from the aging industrial waterway. Now, in the 1930s, 5.5 million tons of freight moved along the Newtown, and for over a century, this once placid creek had become deformed by the needs of industry. But those trusty highways that Robert Moses had helped construct now provided the industries and refineries with a way to leave New York City, moving to less congested, less polluted areas of the country and leaving behind their rotting old docks and factories. And just how grotesque did it get? Well, from the New York Times, 1978, quote, a Coast Guard helicopter on a routine patrol last September 2nd spotted the telltale iridescence of a large oil spill oozing into Newtown Creek, which runs between Brooklyn and Queens. After making test borings, the Coast Guard determined that the spill was coming from a vast underground pool. A few months later, the news got worse. The spill was coming from, quote, a vast underground reservoir of 17 million gallons spread over nearly 55 acres, unquote. It was the largest terrestrial oil spill in U.S. history, three times the size of the spill of the Exxon Valdez. Add in all of the sewage and other waste vexing the creek, and you had the makings of a major ecological crisis. In 2010, the creek was declared an official Superfund site by the Environmental Protection Agency, along with Brooklyn's other polluted site, the Gowanus Canal. So all of this ran beneath the Kosciuszko Bridge. Small improvements over the decades brought only mild relief to one of the more unpleasant stretches of New York Highway. This no longer seemed like an honor for one of the Revolutionary War's most underappreciated heroes, does it? From the New York Times, March 1st, 2000, quote, The Kosciuszko Bridge has long been known for its perennially snarled traffic, its stark cemetery-framed views of the Manhattan skyline, and its frequently misspelled name. But the Kosciuszko as a bungee-jumping destination? Yesterday, four men preparing to bungee jump off the Kosciuszko were arrested and charged with reckless endangerment, trespassing, and disorderly conduct. Said a police spokesperson, they did it because it was leap year. In 2009, the General Contractors Association of New York released a survey of the worst roads and bridges in the New York City area. The Kosciuszko ranked number one. By the following year, the New York State Department of Transportation came up with several proposed new designs. The winning design is actually two single-tower cable-stage structures, the first of their kind in New York and the largest contract ever commissioned by the Department of Transportation. So, in other words, people are actually taking it seriously. The eastbound bridge of the brand-new Kosciuszko 
opened on April 27th, 2017, and debuted with a glamorous lighting display. Certainly the most charming illuminations to ever rise above Newtown Creek and bright colors that had nothing to do with toxic chemical wastes. So that's one of the two bridges built. Finally, on October 1st of that year, the old Kosciuszko Bridge was taken down in a spectacular controlled explosion. One I think that the old general himself would have approved of. According to the New York Times, quote, 22 million pounds of steel dropped to the ground. From the official viewing area, the site was a bit eerie. By the time you heard the blast, there was nothing. A gray puff, then an absence. And then the new bridge stood there, no longer obscured, silhouetted in the morning sun. In the way that the brain makes sense of the world, it looked like it had always been there." Unquote. That eastern-bound bridge was joined on October 29th 2019 by its cable-stayed companion carrying westbound traffic. The reviews are in, and I think most New Yorkers actually love the bridge. The Times quoted a retired Brooklyn contractor, quote, the thing that made him happiest as he walked the bridge on Wednesday was hearing people say Kosciusko correctly. He said, people can pronounce, traffic can improve, people learn, progress. Now, if I may say, the bridge seems finally like a fitting tribute to a Polish national hero. A bridge as much an architectural marvel of its time as the George Washington Bridge was when it opened in 1931. A bridge that's a comforting view, whether you're coming back from the airport or just heading home after a day of work, and an excellent reminder of the immigrant community in Brooklyn, which inspired this revolutionary name. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more images of bridges, past and present, here over Newtown Creek. By the way, there's also a pedestrian walkway over the bridge, and I, of course, made a trip over the bridge on a cloudy afternoon a few days ago, so I'll share some of my images from that trip. And, of course, you can find some as well over at our Instagram page at BoweryBoysNYC. To those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com, we have a fun new episode of Side Streets waiting for you, a sort of look back on the year of 2023, and it also features a special announcement from Tom that you might want to hear. And if you're not on Patreon, please join us there. You'll help produce the show and get some fun extra features, including bonus audio and Patreon-exclusive merchandise. Head over to patreon.com slash Boys for more details. So happy 2024, everyone. Tom will be back for the next episode. So we'll see you then. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.